Welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowey, and I'm uh, here in the uh, Wire and Vice Lab. Um, sitting with me, I've got uh, Mr. Justin Perkins. Uh, he owns and operates Mystery Room Mastering. Um, he also works with the License Lab out of here as well. Um, he's played in a number of projects over the years on the side. Uh, and he uh, teaches uh, part-time, right? Part-time? Yeah, just one day a week. One day a week at MATC. Uh, so I'm excited to uh, be sitting here in this uh, wonderful facility and uh, talking to him a little bit about his artistry, his passions, and why he does what he does. Justin, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me. Sure thing, man. I'm glad we didn't get the, the banner in the background. Oh, uh, that's okay. Yeah. That just would have been like... One more thing to bring? Yeah, cumbersome, bring hopping on the bus and whatnot. Okay. But otherwise, I mean... Maybe you can Photoshop it in or mm. something. <laughs> exactly. You know, the wonders of uh, editing technology, yeah. right? Um, well, let's start, Justin. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, I know there's all this mass hysteria going on right now. I understand that, you know, it is kind of a... a weird time right now yeah it's a very ominous feeling but i mean it, it honestly hasn't affected me personally too much i mean i'm of course washing my hands and being careful so i don't um pass it on to other people and things but with what i do i'm usually in a room by myself 90 percent of the day anyway so not yeah. much has really changed for me i know it's a disruption for a lot of people and that's unfortunate so i'm feeling very fortunate that i can still kind of just keep on doing what i'm doing in this little bubble here yeah and we'll see where things go but totally um, so yeah I guess for historical sense you know this is the day after the national emergency has been declared so it's almost too early to tell how it's gonna play out yeah yeah I I think that <clears throat> you know I think that as long as people are just yeah like being uh, responsible and safe um, and just not being complacent in their hygiene on a on a on a in a generalized sense should be fine, um, but at the same time, you know, it, it is still kind of like it's worrisome. You know, it's just yeah. like I remember when the swine flu was a big thing and like what was it like 2010? Yeah, like, we didn't have social media like we do now. And yeah, so it's hard to compare. You know, and it's obviously a terrible thing that's happening. If if anything good can come out of it, maybe we can realize what are some things that we need to do better just in general you know even when there's not a national emergency could we have better services for people or are there non-essential things that we don't need to maybe do every day because mm -hmm. i mean you're, some of the like in china and italy there's way less pollution uh, as a side effect of people hunkering down now, of course there's a happy medium people can't just st stay inside 100 percent of the time but it might shed some light on what things could we be doing better, what things aren't essential. Yeah. Uh, maybe some people are going to be more productive working at home if they want to, um, instead of commuting to an office where there's a bunch of people who, that you got to chit-chat with and small talk, and then yeah. you get less work done. And it's yeah. So we'll see how it all plays out. It might, right. it might expose some things that can be improved in our culture and society. You know, Medicare for all, that would be nice, but... Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how when something like this happens, then pretty much everybody wants um, a backup plan. Um, yeah, that's a whole other topic, but... Yeah, yeah. We could, go, we could do a couple hours on that, but yeah, it is interesting times to be 
be doing this right now and uh, everything getting delayed yeah. you know I would be okay if the Christmas shopping season got delayed because um, that starts way too early we'll see how yeah. um, I don't know if it's gonna go that far but we'll see how the uh, it's gonna be weird having the baseball season delayed I mean it's something to look forward to when the weather starts getting nice and mm -hmm. uh, you got to wonder what like sports talk radio people are going to talk about for the next <clears throat> few weeks. Right. It's going to, uh, yeah, so it's a whole e new world. Yeah. yeah, it really is. It's, I mean, shifting a lot of sociological ways of thinking and how we, yeah, like you said, just how it does make us look at how we are operating both internally and externally relating to people in our workplaces and the internet. And I didn't have time to actually read the article or vet it, but I did see some on Twitter about how Germany is, you know, passing some kind of relief bill to the musician and artist community because they're taking a big hit with all the theaters closing and performances and it'd be nice to see something like that here. Um, you know, they yeah. had no problem putting a bunch of money in the stock market for a brief period of time, an obscene right. amount of money that just made a little like tiny, one, little tiny uh, bump on the little graph. Yeah, it was like one point five uh, trillion or something like that. Yeah, it's beyond comprehension, yeah. really. But you know, it'd be nice if other sectors got uh, a little something. I'm not saying it needs to be that much, but <laughs> right just yeah. enough to be so some of the bands and artists out there can be like um, not worrying about every gig that gets canceled, you know, because there's a lot of them. Um, yeah. Artists, big and small, so. Absolutely. Yes, I, but like you said, you know, that's. <laughs> things are going, I mean, as you can maybe hear, there's a band down the hall recording drums and life's moving on, so. Yeah. Faux Fiction's here, shout out to Faux Fiction. Yeah, they're just getting started on some drums, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. I think they're here all weekend. Mm. Well, that's very exciting. Um, yeah, man, so. So, uh, what we talk about on Mr. Nice Guy, we talk love and fear, passion and creativity. And, um, you know, I've, so, I freelance write for Breaking Entering, uh, DIY music blog. Oh, yeah, very familiar. Yeah, uh, run by a good, a, a good Alan Hollis. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, you know, go around to local shows and I do artist spotlights interviewing bands and musicians about, you know, what they have going on, about records they're working on, about their goals, about, you know, their relation to the Milwaukee music scene and whatnot. And uh, uh, a lot of artists I've talked to have uh, mentioned uh, Justin Perkins. You know, um, a lot of people have um, mastered their records here um, under your supervision and whatnot. And um, so... Needless to say, like I've I've heard a lot about you, and um, I've well, I was excited when you reached out and interested in uh, uh, sitting down with me to talk about you know what what it is you do here. So I guess to start, Justin, I'd like to hear a little bit about your background. Like growing up, like um, was music like um, a creative outlet for yourself? Yeah, I guess you know pretty young I was interested in music. You know, my dad had a guitar on the house and played records a lot, um, you know, got me into like Buddy Holly and the Beatles and some of the classics, but I was also kind of into sports, you know, as most young boys are, you know, yeah. into baseball, soccer. The city I grew up in, Nina, is a very big soccer town, so mm -hmm. it was, you know, inevitable that I would at least try to play soccer. Um, but as, 
uh, I got older, you know, as you started doing the school sports, you know, like through the high schools and middle schools, you know, those practices are every day. <laughs> yeah. When you're younger, you do like one practice a week and like one game a week, and that was more my, my style. But it started to get too serious, and I was not necessarily a good athlete. And I just got more serious about music. You know, I had a fifth grade teacher that was super into music. Um, every Friday, he would bring his acoustic guitar in and put lyrics on the overhead projector. This is dating myself a little bit, but, you know, the old school projector oh, with yeah. a light. We still, uh, I mean, like, we were still using projectors in high school. I mean, okay. and that was 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, so this would have been, like, uh, I would say late 80s. I was in fifth grade. And, uh, you know, so anyways, he would put the lyrics on the projector, and if you were a good student... <laughs> You got to be in his classroom and he would play the guitar and all the kids would sing along. It was primarily Beatles songs, but he would work in some David Bowie and some cool stuff. Nice. Especially, you know. So he got me really interested in getting into the music instead of just listening to it. You know, we would ask him questions about the Beatles and stuff before class that would start. And I had a guitar, from, um, I'm trying to think how. Oh, um, so my dad's uncle or something. Yeah, my dad's uncle inherited a guitar from like a roommate in the 60s that couldn't pay his rent and gave him this like Gibson, it was like a mid-60s Gibson, really it's actually quite collectible now wow. but um, anyways he just hung on to it and never learned how to play it in the late 80s he gave it to my dad because uh, he knew they kind of were into music or whatever mm -hmm. and um, so I started playing around on that thing and I had a friend that lived across the street that was actually pretty good at guitar I think he mostly wanted to check out the guitar more than hang out with me, but he would come over and we'd, he would show me a couple songs and stuff. And So this teacher really got me into like trying to play music more. And then um, what really got things going was when the Nevermind by Nirvana came out. I think I was in fifth grade, so a lot of things hitting at once, you know, like my teacher, um, Nevermind by Nirvana was huge, because at that time, Popular music was pretty bizarre sounding looking back, you know, the 80s, everything was fairly synthesized, they're mm -hmm. like Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer and all this garbage. Um, I don't want to say garbage, but you know, my whole point was it was stuff that the average um, young kid from the Midwest was not going to be able to do. Like, I, I don't know how they made those sounds, you know, you need like synthesizers and yeah. it was very just not... Uh, attainable to someone my age and my location and of course this is way before the internet and computers were everywhere so when Nevermind came out it kind of struck a chord with me because um, of just how it sounded you know there's drums bass guitar and someone singing and like um, I think that maybe gave me and some friends some inspiration of maybe we can do this you know obviously at a much crappier level but it was something that we could identify with, like, okay, this is something that we, if we have, we can go down to the music store and get these things and do something that sort of resembles that. Uh, so that was a couple things hitting at once that really inspired us. And, you know, I was a fan of the Beatles and stuff, but that was, stuff was also considered kind of older music at the time, and anything modern was just so bizarre sounding. Now, you know, again, we're in fifth grade, so we didn't know about underground music or any of that stuff. It was all, like, what you're hearing on Top 40 radio at the <coughs> time, so... My radar was very small, but anyways, that whole thing opened things wide open because then you start going to an exclusive company and digging around in their independent section and discovering local bands that were a little older than you. And mm -hmm. So that's kind of how things got going, it's just um, at a young age, I guess. You know, we, 
me and my friend Tim, we had a band with a name in like fifth or sixth grade, and oh. we were trying to find someone to play drums, um, mm -hmm. which was hard to do at that age. Um, you know, there was the marching band, but that's not necessarily what we wanted. Right. Yeah. We wanted a rock drummer, um, which there was it a whole there wasn't a whole lot of options at that uh, point in time. But you know, we found a, a person that would play the drums and kind of mm -hmm. went from there. I don't even know if I answered your question. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, you did. <laughs> you did. <laughs> yes, yeah. a lot of it. Like that is kind of like well, it's how it starts. Uh, a lot of it might you know come from the teacher. You know come from what's popular at the yeah, time. Yeah, I just got super lucky that I had this fifth grade teacher and you know, he was a really cool teacher. He, at the end of the school year you could go paint. He had like a Volkswagen hippie van and he let the students paint it. He was a pretty open-minded guy. Awesome. Um, ended up reconnecting with him on Facebook a few years ago and he passed away um, sadly so it's kind of a... I'm glad I got to at least reconnect with him once and you know send him an email. You know, when I had in fifth grade there was no email. So there was right. no such thing. This was kind of weird. But uh, anyway, so yeah, it's kind of progress from there and then you meet when middle school hits then there's this whole there's a whole bigger pool of friends and students and kids to interact with and mm -hmm. they know about this thing and, and I don't have any siblings but you know then some of those kids had older brothers and sisters that were already aware of cool music that you'd never heard of and mm -hmm. it just kind of snowballs from there yeah totally speaking of snowballing um, you know how yeah so like as you got older like going into like you know, high school, like, were you playing in bands, like, more and more as you got older as well? Yeah, we had a couple bands that I don't need to get into in middle school and high school. You know, we actually started, I think we had one out-of-state gig in high school. We had played in Green Bay, Wisconsin, which, we were from Nina, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, which is Fox Valley. Green Bay had this ridiculous, ridiculously amazing all-ages um, punk rock venue called the Concert Cafe turned into rock and roll high school, but we somehow weaseled our way into playing there, you oh. know, um, and then somebody saw us play there and asked us to play uh, an out-of-state show, so that was kind of a, at the time, you know, a big deal, you know, we talked my dad into the bar, and he had like a Jeep, we could, f we fit as much equipment in there as we could, and played the show, um, and uh, yeah, so we still did bands in high school, and then at that point, we needed to record, or we thought we did, and uh, I learned how to do it a little bit. You know, there was a ad at the local music store, like the instrument store. This guy had a, a cassette 8-track, so it was like a little plastic thing. You put a cassette tape in it, and you you can layer eight things, basically. So we layered the drums and the guitars and some vocals, and, you know, I didn't have any desire of recording other bands, but we just did it for our band to get something down, because we tried to get into a studio in Nina, but um, I don't blame the guy, but he never really got back to us after, you know, we probably made like a boombox recording of a practice or something, and, yeah. you know, he didn't even want our money. <laughs> it's like, no, I got uh, busy. So we just had to learn how to do it ourselves, and uh, that led to other bands in the high school, you know, saying, can you record us? And mm -hmm. I, like, I guess, you know, I got the stuff if you really want to, and, you know, that turned into, I don't, I wouldn't say a light bulb went off, but very slowly, I started to realize that maybe I could do this for, I didn't even consider it a job or career, just, you know, extra income or something to do, because um, I enjoyed it. I didn't think I would. I was never that kind of person that would take things apart to see how they go back together, mm -hmm. like electronics. I, I, I got to know some people like that, and they're really hands-on, techie people and can fix 
things. I'm terrible at that, but I did at least have an interest in trying to get good sounds. And, mm -hmm. and why does this album sound this way um, compared to this one? Yeah. And why can't I even get close to that? And uh, what's going on? You know, all these little things. I, I tried to figure, th you know, analyze other recordings and figure out how to, to get that sound. And that's sure. That's what led to other people um, asking me to record them. And uh, it was interesting because one time I had a band come in and I did everything the same, which is uh, my base. I did a lot of stuff in my dad's basement. I had a certain sound because it was a crappy basement studio, but one day this band came in and it actually sounded really good, you know, relatively speaking, and I was like, what, what am I doing different, you know, and it, then it occurred to me that, oh, the band is really good, you know, I had worked my way up to getting a really good band in the studio, and that's, another light bulb went off and said, okay, you know, it has to be a great drummer, you know, that has a lot to do with the sound as well, I mean, and again, this is before computers and Pro Tools when you can edit and manipulate things. I was doing stuff on tape, so you can, mm -hmm. they kind of had to do it correctly. You know, I couldn't sugarcoat it too much. So that was another eye-opening moment for sure, too. Um, it's just getting, starting to get good enough bands in there that could help me sound better and kind of goes from there. You know, then you get a little bit better band and then you get a little better and then you get a different piece of equipment and then it just keeps going from there. And it's honestly, hopefully, hopefully still going. I mean, it's just... Yeah. Um, Never ending. Totally, yeah. Uh, when did you uh, find your way into Milwaukee? Well, about 2007 or 8, I want to say. I think it might have been the winter of 2007. I know it was the winter. I just don't know if it was 7 or 8. But, uh, you know, I was living in Madison for a while um, before I moved here. And, um, yeah, I moved to Madison to work at Smart Studios, which is kind of a or was kind of a well-known studio. Ironically, um, the guy that owns it recorded and produced Nirvana, never mind. Oh, wow. Um, so kind of, things kind of came to a half circle there, if, uh, maybe I would say. Um, but I could tell that that studio probably wasn't going to last a whole lot longer because this is about 2008, well, like I said, 2008 or so, 2007. Um, home recording was really taking off. Um, Music streaming was just becoming a thing, uh, so music sales were down. You know, bands and artists weren't able to sell CDs as much, uh, so recording budgets just went from pretty decent to non-existent. So, a lot of the projects coming through were just people coming in to do their drums, because to do drums, you usually need a big space um, and a lot of stuff, and studios have that. But that was getting to a point where you could do your drums in a big studio, then you could go home and overdub the guitars and vocals and keyboards, whatever you got to do. So that studio was just getting a lot of sessions where people were coming in for the drum room and then leaving instead of doing the whole project there. So I could kind of see the writing on the wall that maybe this studio isn't going to last because, um, like I said, it was a pretty big studio, so they had a lot of overhead. It was a big building right on Main, um, East Washington and Madison, so a pretty big street, you know. Um, not a cheap property, pretty close to the capital. Um, anyways, I could tell that they were going to be probably folding soon, and they they actually did a couple of years later. So I thought if I'm going to make my own studio and do my own business, I want to do it in Milwaukee because I just had more of a connection here. Mm -hmm. um, bands I was in, we played a lot of shows here, you know, basement shows, um, various venues around town. Um, you know, so I was really familiar with it. Um, some 
family was kind of from the area, so I just felt more comfortable here, so um, decided to move to Milwaukee, and I had no real plan. Um, you know, I was busy enough playing in various bands and recording various albums and stuff that I just felt like it, some, something was going to work out. And, um, oddly enough, I reached out to Daniel Holter, who... Um, Shout out to Daniel Holter. Yeah, we're in this building, to see what was going on here because it just looked the website was nice it looked nice and I ended up doing a couple things here but not too much at the time it wasn't quite set up like it is now for recording bands it was more of a production studio for library music and um, it's just a different time back then although I did do a couple of sessions here I did I think I did one full album here with a client but I did a lot of stuff at Howell Street Studios uh, shout out to Shane yeah because um, I reached out to Shane and I could tell that um, he was doing some similar bands, similar genre, similar scene, similar price range for studio rates and stuff. So I said, hey, you know, um, can I rent out your studio a couple days a week here and there? And I think that maybe he liked that because he could take a day off, but his studio would still have a little bit of income. Because mm -hmm. you know, when, when you run a big space and you're not there, it's not making any money. It's kind of a, a waste of something. Right. Um, so anyways, I, d I did quite a lot of albums at Howell Street um, Camp. One, I did, one of my favorites was The Goodnight Loving. I don't know if you know the band The Goodnight Loving. Um, mm. Or Phylum. You know the band Phylums? I don't think they, so. Some of those guys wanted to do that. Well, I did an album for Goodnight Loving there, but I did a lot of stuff and um, just found kind of a home in, in that neighborhood in Bayview. Um, so um, eventually I opened my the room next door to, Sh to Howell Street opened up. Uh, it was a mastering studio. The guy wanted to move to the East Coast and said, you know, I'm not going to sell the building, but I want to move. He said, do you want to rent my room? So then I uh, said, sure, because I was actually starting to do more mastering than recording. And um, as great as it was that Sh Shane let me rent a studio, I was getting to the point where I might as well have my own space because I was renting it so much. I'm like, if I just had my own space, then I don't have to deal with, it was just simpler, you know. Like, mm -hmm. I felt confident enough that if I just have my own monthly space that it's it's going to fill up, and it did. And then that's kind of when mastering took over my schedule instead of mixing and recording. You know, And I still did a little bit of mixing and recording if it was the right project um, and time permitted, but now I'm just full-time mastering. So, mm -hmm. again, I don't know if I answered your, your question fully, but, or I probably answered it too full, but... <laughs> Did I cover you did what, great. Did I cover what you were getting you at? You did least? great, Justin. Okay. You did okay. great. Um, so, I guess like anyone who like takes music passionately and seriously, like understands the process. But for those that don't know exactly, that aren't familiar with like the, um, with, you know, the synthesizing of music and everything, like define. Like, would you care to define exactly what mastering is? Yeah. Well. I think it's easier to start with what it isn't, and it's not deciding the levels of certain instruments. It's not saying I want the vocals to be this loud, and the keyboards to be this loud, and the drum beat to be this loud. That all happens in mixing, so that happens before I get it. So ideally when I get the songs, they already sound good. You should be happy with how it sounds. Uh, ideally mastering isn't a fixing process. It's really more like framing the picture. Like mm. You have to have a good photo to do a good framing job on a picture, right? Yeah. Um, but you can decide maybe what doesn't need to be in there. Can we crop that out? Can we make this a little more in focus? 
so that gets a little more into Photoshop. It's kind of like a little bit like um, or color correction for for video. You know, mm. you can't fix the source. Some you know, you can only do so much for the source. It's kind of more about enhancing, uh, making things sound as good as possible in all environments. You know, whether it's earbuds, a Bluetooth speaker, a big home stereo system, a car, mm -hmm. a club system, anything. You know, you want to be able to put the thing on and have it sound good and not be tempted to adjust the EQ on your stereo. Um, and then also the song-to-song -song relationships, which, which gets overlooked a lot, um, I think. Um, so yeah. it's not just about making every song sound good, you want it to flow as an album. Yeah. If one song is meant to be kind of softer and more of a ballad or kind of less intense, that's my job. Um, mm -hmm. If there's a song that's really intense and supposed to be the biggest, loudest song on the album, then that's my job. Um, so, and then it gets into quality control, you know, listening for clicks and pops. Um, as we make things louder and clearer, sometimes little gremlins pop out of the woodwork. You know, there's um, mouth clicks on vocals, there's clicks from bad edits that people missed, a crossfade that someone didn't do, um, there's noise that can creep in, and basically things that are easy to overlook in mixing because you're honestly focused on more important things. So, the mastering person is the last person to really touch the audio, so you gotta, you know, you do some artistic, creative, it's not a huge in the creative department though, except the song's already recorded, mixed, uh, right. so it doesn't usually get creative too often, it's more also on the quality control side. Is there a dropout? Um, it's not uncommon for me to get sent a file that cuts off before the song ends, mm -hmm. or um, it's also not uncommon for someone to send me something to master and I master it and I send it back and they say, oh man, I forgot that the backing vocals were muted. I have to send you a new version. So it becomes this quality control process. And then also optimizing for formats. You know, vinyl is coming back. A lot of people are releasing their stuff on vinyl. And I don't do... Um, the first step of vinyl process is cutting lacquer discs. You know, they take a lathe and cut a disc. I don't do that, but I make a special file that's optimized for that, that is going to translate better. Because if you just take the, the digital master or the CD master, you can cut that to vinyl, but um, it's probably not going to sound as good as it could. But if, if, you, if I take a few basic um, steps and best practices, you know, whoever does cut the vinyl can do a great job. Um, and get it to sound good on vinyl. And that's why you can't make a blanket statement that vinyl's better than digital. Um, it really depends how the vinyl is done. There's a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of reissues coming out where they just took the CD master, transferred it to vinyl, and technically it's on vinyl, but does it sound good? You know, kind of sounds like a vacuum cleaner going in the background, just yeah. static. Not great, because it's too, the digital master is too blown out. Um, the problem is we like our digital music to be really loud and compressed these days. Um, a little too loud for my taste, but it is what it is. That doesn't translate to vinyl. And the reason they didn't have that problem in the 80s and 90s, is, or early 90s, is because digital music wasn't pushed that loud. So what worked for the digital master was pretty good for the vinyl, too. You know, it wasn't really a good thing. But net, when vinyl came back, by the time vinyl came back, digital masters were so loud, people were wondering, why isn't this translating well to vinyl? And then... You know, now it's kind of fashionable to make a special master for vinyl. So I make a, you know, I make a variety of formats. Cassettes are back, um, so there's little things to do differently for that. Streaming services are 
it's kind of the wild west right now because streaming services, yeah. um, by default, almost all of them have a volume normalization built in. So if you do a super loud digital master, they turn it down. So if you are a Spotify user, the default setting in your app has normalization turned on. So that's and it's kind of good for the user because it sets all the songs to the same level. I don't know. In the early days of the iPod, um, it was very common for song. You know, you listen to a playlist, and the songs were all over the place. A quiet song, a loud one. Yeah. Um, you know, people that are using their phones and iPods at at their work, or they're bartending, or at a restaurant. That can be annoying because you know you're working, serving drinks and food, and then all of a sudden the song comes blasting. Uh, yeah. Or a quiet song comes on and you can't hear it. It sounds like the music died. So, anyways, it's overall it's kind of a good thing, but it's perplexing to some producers and artists about why, how come when I upload my song and I listen to it on Spotify, it's super quiet. And, and you can turn that off as a listener, but most people don't know that settings there. Even though a lot of musicians, yeah. I get a lot of emails from musicians being like, and it's usually it's not stuff that I worked on, but they're like, hey, I. You know, mixed and mastered my own thing, and then I put it on Spotify, and it's super quiet, and it's like there's a lot of variables that, and that's kind of what comes into play with mastering is because I can, you know, I have tools that will tell me how much is it going to get turned on by, and you don't want to adhere to these rules 100% because there are places where the level doesn't get changed. Um, Apple Music doesn't have it on by default, so it's kind of this annoying mess where some places do it, some places don't. Some places you can't even turn it off. Some places have it on by default. There's no standard, basically, so it's a big mess. But I can help my clients navigate that and decide what is the right level mm -hmm. and help them understand what's happening and what's going to happen and um, what to do about it. Because um, it comes down to frequencies, too. Uh, you know, if something's too bass heavy, it's going to get um, penalized and turned down more than something that isn't. So a lot of things can go wrong. Um, if you're not familiar with how this all works, and you know, obviously that's a relatively new thing. Streaming is, I would say, streaming is less than 10 years old. Um, you know, Spotify might have started in 2008 or so, mm -hmm. but it didn't really take off for a few years. And yeah, like 2013, 14. Yeah, so it's a relatively new thing that, and it takes people. You know, I, I try to tell them, hey, you know, we can make the loudest master ever, but you may be disappointed with how it sounds on Spotify. Um, and it might take them a couple of releases for that to register. They need, because a lot of times I tell people all this, and they're like, "That's cool, but can you just make it really loud?" And then we do, and then they have to hear it on Spotify to understand maybe what I was talking about, and then maybe the next album they'll find that sweet spot. So, yeah. so that's that's also what mastering is: is just figuring out how it's going to translate to now to the streaming services. But again, also vinyl. People still make CDs. You know, people laugh at me <laughs> when I talk about CDs. Um, see. I send out a lot of CD masters every month. I don't know who's buying them, but I know that bands that are playing gigs like festivals all summer, um, they still make CDs. I don't know if they're, they might give them away more now than sell them, but so I need to you know, know how to make a CD master with all the CD text and the, the metadata is a big thing. Uh, metadata is um, really important and it's unfortunate that like on Spotify we can't see who played bass on a song or who sang backing vocals on a song. Yeah. Um, Tidal is a little better. I don't know if you're familiar with Tidal. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tidal is better with that, but they can only do so much. They only can display the information they get. So mm -hmm. some releases have very little information. Some have a lot. But 
Um, there's information I can embed in the files and on the CD master that is useful to some degree, but not in all areas. But it's something to be aware of. I try to make clients aware of metadata and like how it can help them. Like you know, just just basically just put it in there. It can't hurt. It's like chicken chicken noodle soup. You know, it can't hurt. Um, in some places it might be displayed. Some places not. A lot a lot of times you have to just re-enter that information again with your distributor when you put it on Spotify, mm -hmm. but it's good to have the data collected and embedded wherever you can, because who knows, you know, some of these files are like artifacts, you know, if someone finds it in 10 years and there's no information, they don't know who did it. Yeah. Um, if they got a little information in there, then they can, you know, trace back and find, I guess 10 years is a little early, maybe 40 years from now, like when when people are not around anymore. Um, so anyways, I try to, but that's what mastering is too, is collecting some metadata and make sure it's embedded in the files and mm. it remains to be seen how useful that is, but I think it's, we're, we need to be at least collecting it and yeah. putting it in where we can because it's important information. I mean, if you go, if you can go to Goodwill and, and dig through their records and find out who played saxophone on some record you never heard of, why can't we do that now with new music coming out, you know? We, we did a better job in the days of like cardboard and physical products and I, I, my fear is that younger musicians coming up don't even realize what they're missing out on. They just put music on SoundCloud and SoundCloud's a bad example because there is a field to just type whatever you want but my whole point is there's places where digital music can be consumed but you have no idea who helped make it. Yeah, exactly. And that's a problem. Right. Um, the movie industry is better, like there's IMDB for... Yeah. And I'm not saying it's perfect, I don't really, I'm not a big movie fan, I'm sure someone could have a gripe with it, but it's way better than what we have for music. And even photographers, you know, it's it's rare to see a photo anywhere without seeing who took the picture. Um, yeah. For some reason, music is just behind the times on the whole credits thing, so. Yeah, and, yeah, like, unless, yeah, you buy a physical copy with, like, the liner notes and everything, like, you can, you know, see who did what on every song you know you can you can there's many records that have you know the lyrics all there as well like yeah and we're getting there with the lyrics yeah i think spotify might have lyrics now but there's a lot to be desired with that yeah yeah it sounds so it sounds like mastering's a lot of like just compartmentalizing a lot of otherwise overlooked yeah it's factors a, it's a details job i mean it's not as fun as mixing probably for most people because um, there's just less to do um, the other thing, you know, I'm usually working with a stereo mix, so left and right, so I get a stereo file. Whether the song has a hundred instruments or three instruments, I still get a stereo file. And I can really only change subtle things. I can make it brighter, I can add more low end, yeah. but I can't necessarily turn up the hi-hat or turn up the shaker. Or I usually don't add reverb in mastering. A couple times a year someone might request this, but usually the reverb and effects are already baked into the music so it's not a, and before I knew what mastering was you know it sounded pretty important because it's mastering I'm like wow that must be a really important job and it's important but not in ways I thought you know it's um, the sound you know a great production um, sometimes the best you know, you know sometimes they do very little to stuff if it already sounds amazing I don't have to do much yeah um, sometimes it but someone does need to like listen through and quality control things but then there's some stuff where it needs a little more help, you know, it needs to be a little brighter, it can clear up some muddiness, um, 
can make it just more energetic, you know. Mm -hmm. So it, no pro no two projects are the same, you know. That's why you can't really have a preset. And that's why some some of these online tools are not good because you know there's automatic mastering now where you upload your file and it masters it. But if you think about it, if you um, took the let's say there was a definitive best recording ever um, in the world and you fed that into the online mastering program, it would try to do something, right? When maybe it doesn't need any, it's already perfect. So, or another way to look at it would be, let's say you upload your song to the automatic mastering service and you get it back. If you send it right back to them, it's gonna do more stuff. And it's like, if this is really doing a good job, it should have done all that the first time. You know, it's just adding more processing and it's just guessing basically. So there is some human emotion involved in mastering. of like, okay, this is a, a folk song it doesn't need to be blaring or this is a metal album it needs to be this or or it could be this is a rock album but there's an acoustic song at the end it doesn't the acoustic song needs to be way more relaxed than uh, the, the big rock song mm -hmm. so you know computers are wonderful but we do need some human uh, emotion and intelligence yeah. to to uh, to really do it right. Intervention. Um, yeah, and, and dealing with things like fades at the end of songs, you know, do I fade it out um, before the note ends? Yeah. Do I crossfade the songs? Yeah. And if I do crossfade the songs, where does the track marker go? Does it go like in the middle of the noise? Does it go at the downbeat of the next song? And then how does that translate to the streaming services? So there's, you know, it's, it's just a really details job. Um, I think that's why not as many people do it is because honestly, um, maybe it's not as exciting to some people. I, I really like it, uh, but I think a lot of people that like audio and recording pr would prefer to record and mix because that's where you can really, that's where you're creating the paint. You know, that's where you got all the colors and the paintbrush, and you're creating something from nothing really. Mm -hmm. Whereas again, the mastering is more just framing that picture and making yeah. sure that it looks good on the wall yeah. uh, when people look at it. Um, yeah. That's something I've actually been thinking about a lot lately is um, songs that fade out versus songs that, you know, just cut, you know? Yeah. I think about that a lot. Yeah. I think about those songs that fade out, and I'm like, how long did they play that song for? Yeah. Until yeah. they finish playing. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, and having done a lot of recording and mixing, you know, I've heard plenty of songs that we know are going to fade out, so you just keep going, and sometimes people get goofy with the lyrics because they think it's probably going to be faded out by now and some, some funny moments can happen but I think a lot of, you know, the reason for the fade out in the first place if you think like back to the 60s when everything was on 45 albums also known as 7 inches you know those could only hold so much music so if it was a 5 minute song you know they had to fade it out probably um, for the single version um, and things like that so there's, there with vinyl you have a uh, a, time, a pretty hard, it's actually not very hard time limit, but you do have a time limit and the further you push it the worse the vinyl usually sounds so mm -hmm. CDs have a hard cutoff of 80 minutes like it's it's just gonna stop. Vinyl you can do an 18 minute side, you can do a 20 minute side and I'm talking about like a 12 inch record. You can even do a 24 minute side but when when you go over 22 minutes or so that's where things go south pretty quickly so another part of my job is you know if I master an album that's 50 minutes long, I got to be the guy that I hate to break it to you guys, but this is probably just going to be too long for vinyl. Like, if you want the vinyl to sound good, you should probably cut a song or two. I know it hurts to mm -hmm. do that. It's like your children, you know. But 
if you want the vinyl to sound good, um, most people say under 20 minutes aside is going to sound good, or some people even say under 18 minutes aside. And then people are like, well, I have this Pink Floyd album that has 25 minute sides. And it's like, well, that Pink Floyd album probably had a ridiculous budget and, and the best oh. engineers and musicians on the planet at the time. So, yeah. um, no offense, but, you know, a lot of things went right. And, um, and especially if we're going to use like a budget vinyl plant, that's just a recipe for it to not sound good. So sometimes I have to break the bad news and let them know that. Maybe it's a little long for vinyl. Again, you can put it on there, but is it going to sound good? You, you, it gets to a certain length where you start to really compromise the sound quality. And part of my job is just educating people and letting them know that, because a lot of people want to do vinyl. I have no idea that there's limitations to the format. Um, yeah. you know, that's also why a lot of hip-hop singles were like 12-inch singles back in the day, because they could put so much more bass on them, um, so they would sound better. Mm -hmm. uh, because people would wonder, like, well, it's only one song on that side. Why is it a whole 12-inch? You know, I can fit a whole side of a normal album on that, but it's all about getting that lot of low end and uh, bass. So it's a very physical and and touchy thing, vinyl. Yeah, um, sure. So that's kind of where uh, that was a little tangent. But fade outs had to happen back in the day f for the time oh, purposes. Sure. Um, so I still do a lot of songs with fade outs. You know, sometimes it's just the person didn't think of an ending. Mm -hmm. you know, we don't know how to end the song. We're just going to fade it out. Um, nice things like that. But then there's also just fades of like the last note. Like I get songs where the last note goes for ten seconds sometimes, and I know that they don't want it to go that long. It's my job to be like, let's just do a slow fade out of the last note for four seconds. Mm -hmm. Then I got to decide when is the next song coming. That's another part of mastering is. Yeah. You know, if it's a punk album, they usually want the songs like very little time between the songs. Yeah. If it's a jazz album, maybe a little more space. Um, pop albums, you know, it can vary. So, you know, mastering is also putting the songs in the correct order and figuring out how much space goes between them. Mm -hmm. And some clients are really picky about that, some aren't. Most of the time, they just tell me to use my judgment, and then if they have any tweaks, I can just do that. Like, hey, add a second of space between these two songs. Mm -hmm. and That's getting a little bit lost in the world of singles. You know, I feel like we're reverting back to everyone's releasing singles because they want to stay top of mind on social media and have, yeah. have a new single every few weeks, and I get that. Um, but we do have to be careful, you know, if you, re if you release ten singles over the course of a year, um, that's not an album master. You know, we still have to put the songs in the right order, determine if they work well together, like, um, when you put these together as a group, does one song feel louder than the other one? Um, how much space should be between the songs? Like Again, just detail stuff that yeah. most people might find boring, but someone's got to do it, and I really like that. And, you know, I also like that... I shouldn't say I like it, but one advantage is there's just really not many people that are just doing only mastering, you know, and that helps me work with a lot of different clients and artists in, yeah. the, in the area and all over the world, really, but because um, I can master an album in a day, whereas if you're mixing, you can maybe mix a couple songs in a day at most. Um, depends how fast you work. It's just a much mastering is much more fast-paced, um, and I like that um, about it. You know, yeah. I, I can usually do a, an album a day or a couple, bunch of singles in an EP or something. You know, it's it's all different genres. It's just I, I like that pace.
Yeah, totally. Make my own schedule too. Yeah. So, um, uh, why how why did you decide on uh, mystery room mastering? The name? Yeah. Oh, I wish I could do it over again. Um, when I when I decided to take over um, the studio next to Shane's on Howell Street, um, this is back when AOL Instant Messenger existed, and I had a friend. Um, we'd always chat back and forth, and like. Because I, when I did that studio, I had to actually like register with the government and make a official business and mm-hmm. put it in writing and stuff. Um, and I think it just came through chatting, like we should just what, what should I name it? It's like people think mastering is mysterious, and it just kind of came about that way. And I don't like that the name is feeds into that because mastering it is mysterious, but it's also can be incredibly simple. It's like I just use normal. Yeah, it's very simple. It's people overthink it. They think it's this mystery process or this dark art kind of thing, and <laughs> I think really they just are way overthinking it. Yeah, uh, it's like um, one of my favorite sayings is um, "magic is just somebody spending way more time on something than you would reasonably expect." You know, um, <laughs> that's valid. Yeah. So, because um, sometimes I do a little borderline magic in the sense of like fixing clicks and pops like I mentioned you know, if there's a big digital blip or something I can usually fix that stuff now mm-hmm. um, anyway so that's how the name came out about it's just a random uh, AOL instant messenger chat and it just kind of fell together that way and I was getting down to needing to call it something because um, I started the business proper in December of whatever year, 2009, and you know it's getting to be the end of the year, and I had to just I wanted to get it done before the end of the year. I was moving so in. I would love a chance to rename my studio, but um, I feel like now's not the right time because um, people know the name and it is what it is. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say it on camera because I like the name. I do have another name I would use. Um, if if I could change it, but sure. I just feel like now is not the right time. I'm I feel like I'm in a little bit of a growing phase where I'm working with a lot of new artists that I haven't been able to work with before. Like um, been doing some singles for Immortal Girlfriend. I really like those guys. They're and, great. Yeah. Um, a few others that I aren't out yet, so I don't want to mention it. But um, I, yeah, I mean, it, it is what it is. I don't love the name, but. I'm stuck with it now for a while anyway. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Most people play it safe and just put their name, you know, like yeah. your name mastering or whatever. And that's maybe what I should have, I don't know. Right. It was just a dumb, it, I didn't have the f- foresight to know what, if it was even going to be successful. I just had to put something on paper. Yeah. And that's what it is. Totally. Yeah, it works. Um, so, um, so how long have you been in Wiring Vice? I think this spring is going on two years. Um, I was here actually from like 2012 to 13, actually in this very room, which is um, right now we're just sitting in an em- empty room, storage room. But I had my studio in here for a couple of years, but then I moved it to Bayview where I had a house because I really wanted to get another space in Bayview because that's where my first one was. And I kept thinking something was going to pop up and it just never did. And honestly, things were, I was doing a lot of solid work out of my house studio, you know, it was a basement. I did some acoustic treatment, so it sounded, you know, things were translating just fine. Um, so it served me well, I, but I was always hoping I would find something closer to home. Um, and I know that people in like Chicago and 
New York have no sympathy, but you know it's like a 20-minute drive over here. Yeah. When you, when you factor in parking and traffic, and can be worse sometimes. So it's not like, but it's you know, it's a better. It's like an hour of your day when you really get down to it. You know, driving yeah. back and forth, getting ready to go. You well, know. My dad commutes an hour to work every day, yeah, and then an hour back. So I guess I got nothing to complain about. But yeah. I, I felt like it was eating into my pro productivity at the time and. The big difference now is I still have a setup at my house. Um, I've mastered whole albums over there. Um, I, all my analog equipment's here and my full rig is here, but if emergencies come up, and, and not every project needs all the analog gear. Again, if, if it already sounds amazing, I don't really want to screw that up. Mm -hmm. So I just keep it very simple. Um, and I do a, um, a couple other things, but I have a, I can do a lot of the quality control work over there. Like sometimes I'll run all the songs through my equipment here and I'll just uh, finish it up at home that kind of thing so I do have a home setup so that kind of eases the um, commuting a little bit because there's honestly days I don't come over here I, I can you know if I get one or two records that are approved and I have to make all the master files and check them and upload you know and then a couple odds and ends I can stay busy for a whole day at my house and not even come over totally. here um, yeah. So I don't come here every day even sometimes, so that helps. But at the time, I didn't have a home setup. So anytime anything needed to happen that wasn't, you know, like an email, I had to come in. The, even if it was like, can you add two seconds between this two songs? I had to come over here and do it. Not that I would just come over just for that, but, you know, I couldn't, yeah. get, I couldn't get things done as quickly. I'd be like, okay, I can do that tomorrow when I'm in, whereas now it's like, yeah, I can go do that in 20 minutes. Sure. So I can be more efficient having two setups, basically. You know, I have my... I still have a decent setup at home, nice speakers, nice listening environment, nice headphones, but then I come over here for um, really serious stuff. So it just helps me be more efficient but not feel like I'm never home. Yeah. You know, I can be at home, I can multitask, get some laundry done, uh, right. you know, that kind of stuff. Totally, yeah. So It helps out. So yeah, but anyways, I've moved back over here like two years ago now, and uh, it's been great because... I didn't really see this coming, but Daniel and Ian have the studio, you know, the recording studio, really kind of ramping up with sessions, you know. As I mentioned, you know, the License Lab occupied a lot of this space for many years, and it was more library production music. Um, and now it's set up more for bands to come in and just get going, you know. It, was, it used to be like if they wanted to do a band session, it was kind of a, a big production just to get it converted over to that kind of layout where now it's just walk-in ready. Like these guys walked in this morning, they're recording drums already. It's So it's kind of a nice timing where like things, it's kind of, it was kind of a nice time to come in and now there's a lot more things happening here. And, uh, you know, you just, you know, there's always bands down the hall recording now and uh, it's just nice, a nice community to, to be a part of. Totally, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, yeah, and so you mentioned the License Lab. Um, that's part of, that's run out of here as well. Yeah, it's a company that makes music for you know people think it's a jingle thing. It's not jingles. It's not like the Menard song or um, the Colder songs. Which man, I, I hate those Colders commercials where they have those. No offense to the bit, people that have been on there, but man, they really milk that song and they have like all these people doing the Colder song. It's none of that stuff. It's just instrumental, um, usually instrumental music that people can license to put in their video and film production. So 
if you're producing a documentary and you need some music that sounds like this, it's probably already made. You know, the website is searchable where you can look for happy music, sad music, loud music, soft music, all types of different um, um, country, you know, there's like uh, all different nationalities, um, all sorts of stuff. So it's a wide music library where people can license the music and uh, cool. so it's not necessarily commercial jingles like, you know, buy my soap. <laughs> by my car, by this car, and all that stuff. It's it's more subtle than that. And if you listen, if you start listening for the music, you hear it a lot more. It's just real. It's designed to be kind of just neutral, like not offensive, just complimenting whatever is on the video. Anyways, um, so I master all that music too for License Lab, um, and that's I think I don't know when it officially started, but. Well, it's probably coming up on 10-year anniversary for them, um, and yeah, so that's run out of this building too. And a certain part of my monthly workload is licensed lab related. Awesome. Um, but I don't get into any of the uh, writing of the material. I just you know do the mastering side of it. But again, it's usually pretty purpose-built songs, um, you know, and yeah. anyone can license them at any time. Um, it's just. Uh, it's a pretty common thing. There's other companies that do it. I like the License Lab because it seems, you know, you can find some pretty cheesy and slap together stuff, but he, the License Lab stuff is, I think, a little higher quality, a little more thoughts put into it. Um, and, you know, it's not like the, the budget bin stuff. It's just yep. you know, really well crafted stuff, you know, that's going to stand the test of time mm -hmm. uh, and things like that. But sure. Yeah, totally. That's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I mean, there's the whole. The, the people doing the real hard work are the people writing the songs and and uh, recording them and producing them and stuff. I just, again, kind of that quality control person where I'm the last person to touch it before it goes out into the world. And yeah. Got to make sure everything's in order. And with that kind of music, they have a lot of different versions of each song. You know, they have a version with the lead part removed. You know, if it's a lead flute, you know, that's a terrible example, but there's a version without that flute so that if someone wants to speak over it, they're not fighting with this flute or this guitar solo or keyboard solo. And there's like 30 second versions and so there's a lot of alternate versions of each song so it gets, you have to be careful to like keep track of them all and make sure they're labeled correctly mm -hmm. and everything's in order. So it's yeah. a little busy as well. Sure, but, um, absolutely. Um, so I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about with you, Justin, because I'm just, like, eager to know, like, okay. being as, like, you are so oriented in, like, the, the technicality and the dissection of music, um, and you always have been, like, um, has it, like, affected the way you listen to music leisurely? Um, it used to when I was recording and producing more. You know, I would, you know, recording and producing music, I was got pretty efficient at identifying like chord progressions and notes and I would really analyze like the pitchiness of a vocal track and I go oh, maybe they should have pitch corrected the vocals a little bit and now that I'm mastering more I can enjoy music more for fun because that's a lot of what mastering is it's you're listening to the finished project you know if there's an out-of-tune guitar or vocal I can't really fix that in mastering it's a that's a mixing and production decision so mastering has allowed me to enjoy music as a listener more again you know I have a nice listening environment over there where you know, a nice set of speakers um, 
and so it's a fun room to listen to music in, whether it's stuff I'm working on or just um, stuff for fun. And I, I get a lot of references in mastering. You know, people will be like, "Can you master our project?" And we want it to sound like this. So then I'll pull it up in there. You know, I, I specifically use Title streaming service in there because it's um, very high quality streaming. Mm -hmm. You know, it's basically the master quality audio files, whereas like Spotify and Apple Music are not the highest quality. I mean, they're fine for casual listening, but when you get in a nice studio, and also when you want to know what the absolute master is, title is pretty good for that because it's the super high quality. So um, now that I'm mastering more, I can appreciate music as a listener, but back in the late 2000s, very early 2000s, um, I, had a, I didn't listen to much new music at all. Um, mostly because I was... Um, so busy making it that at the end of the day I didn't want to listen to um, any more music. Um, with mastering I still listen to music a lot but now that I'm running also a business where I have to do bookkeeping, um, social media, other stuff that isn't music anymore, I have more time to listen to other things and a lot of times it's honestly podcasts because it's easier on my ears and I like to learn. Yeah. But I have been able to enjoy music more again. In fact, I, when I moved over here a couple years ago, I didn't um, bring a turntable. I left it at my house, but now I have a nice turntable set up over there, and um, you know I can listen to some vinyl while I'm prepping things or you know doing emails or something. So that has allowed me to to enjoy music more again. I'm discovering whether it's new releases or not even that new releases but stuff I kept hearing was great and just didn't have time but mm -hmm. you know, it is tough because I you know I do you know I'm thankful to be fairly busy so a lot of times my ears are occupied with stuff I have to work on you know yeah. there's times where I wish I did graphic design or website stuff because then you can listen to music all day and like help, help it motivate you to work but it's a little trickier when you know you have to your ears are occupied with what you're working on you can't really and at the end of a long day, yeah, I'll drive home in silence or with the podcast yeah. on or just because i got to rest my ears and my brain. Yeah, I, Being able to separate myself from a technician side to a, a fan. And sometimes I like to listen to jazz because I have no idea what's going on. Like, I, I can't read music and I can't really do scales. You know, I can place, I can learn how to play a song and know what notes not to hit. But sometimes I appreciate jazz because... Um, I'm less likely to start analyzing it. You know, if I put on like a pop or rock song, I can be like, oh, that's that chord progression, and they're doing this and that. And I, I do catch myself going down that rabbit hole of analyzing it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, not as much as I used to, but again, with jazz, it's just so over my head that I, I can really just not even be tempted to try to figure it out. It's just, I can appreciate it for the. And I'm not even a huge jazz, like, I'm, I don't know every jazz musician and I'm not even like a jazz expert it's just kind of one of those things I can put on to be able to listen to music without diving into the analytical yeah. side of it um, and it's not always jazz but th that definitely helps um, totally especially when I come in here on weekend mornings and it's quiet um, it's just a nice thing to start the day um, yeah yeah I, I would agree with that probably like yeah, yeah it's just it's almost like there's so many things going on in jazz that it can become a passive li listening experience. 
Yeah, if there's no vocals, especially uh, yeah, more instrumental side. Um, I yeah. try to listen to I try to listen to new music as much as I can. It's just again a matter of time and uh, yeah. And now we're just flooded with so much music. You know, um, the internet really opened up, leveled the playing field. Like anyone can release music now. Whereas in the '90s, it was much harder to get your music distributed to the people. Mm -hmm. And yeah, compared to you know those days I mean yeah so it's just times are different there's just so much music out there now it's impossible to keep up with it all but I, yeah I try my best and again I, I, I try to ask for references when I'm working like okay um, what is your end goal here like is there a record that you like the sound of or how loud it is or all this stuff and yeah that just naturally exposes me to new music that I may not have ever heard of or listened to totally Awesome, man. Well, this was awesome getting to hear everything uh, all about, you know, your music career, the mastering side of things. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, streaming services. Like, yeah, like, I feel like I learned a lot today. Um, okay. Yeah, this is... <laughs> well, good. I hope it wasn't too boring or oh, no. dry. I mean, it's not the most exciting process. It's not like... And I rarely even have clients coming in because by the time they send it to me, they're they're kind of checked out with it like we did everything as good as we can uh, now it's dude. time to get out in the world so I, it's kind yeah. of it's not a very interact i mean it's interactive through email but it's not it's different i rarely have like the whole band in and we're having a great time and drinking beers and you know it's it's kind of the very very tail end of the whole process and even milwaukee bands rarely come in because people's schedules don't align and Usually they want it done as fast as possible and as cheap as possible. So that means me doing it on my own and sending it to them instead of waiting till we can all get together mm -hmm. and then making a it just takes longer and yeah. So yeah, man. So as we close out, I ask everyone the same two questions. Um, first, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? Well, it's a combination of what I didn't get to that day and what I want to tackle the next day. Really. Uh, yeah, that's real. I kind of just take things day to day, you know. Um, yeah, so I took that question pretty literally, but, you know, it's just, what did I not get done and what can I do better tomorrow? What puts you to sleep? Um, you know, eventually just uh, realizing and being thankful that there is a tomorrow and that I have plenty of stuff to keep me busy. Um, you know, thankfully it's been a long, long time since I, you know, had nothing on the books, so just that peace of knowing like you know there's going to be an, another day more projects coming and that's exciting to me so I want to rest up and be as healthy as possible to to keep doing those projects so that's certainly thanks for being on the show no problem thanks for having me yeah you bet thanks for hosting me here and everything oh no problem um mystery room mastering wire and vice check out the facility it's beautiful accommodating and uh they do great work here Thank you for watching, Mr. Nice Guy. We'll see you next time.